How exactly did eating the forbidden fruit give Adam and Eve the knowledge of good and evil? And how did that knowledge lead to their death? And also, why did God render the specific judgments that he did against Adam, Eve, and the serpent, or the Nagash? We will talk about that on this week's episode of the Faith by Reason podcast. Welcome to the podcast. The website behind it all, as always, is faithbyreason.net. Please check it out. Tons of great information there. And please be sure to subscribe to faithbyreason.net. Um, look in the upper right corner of the of this website, and you will see the subscribe area. Put your email in there, and you will get uh, new podcasts and blogs when they are published. So for the uh, last several weeks, we have been discussing the Eden narrative and the first dispensation, Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden, Original Sin. We started with an overview of the whole narrative of Genesis chapter 3. Um, we looked. They took a deeper, deeper look into what Eden was like, and that Eden was not just a garden. That Eden was in fact a garden and a mountain, specifically the mountain of the assembly of God, where God's chief angels were there as His advisors. Not because He needed advisors, but because God likes sharing His authority, which He of course shared with the man and the woman, Adam and Eve. They were made in the image of God, meaning they were God's image bearers. So he, they bore his image. They were his representatives on earth. God loves sharing authority, which is awesome. So we looked at that. We also looked at the fact that the serpent, or more specifically, the Nachash in Hebrew, was not just a talking garden snake, but he was, in fact, the entity we call the devil, Satan, Lucifer, because Nachash in Hebrew means the shining one, the illumined one. And that we know for we discussed why there are many, many, many reasons that, that prove that he was not, again not a snake, but actually the devil. He was Satan. We looked at what original sin really was and was not, and then we started looking at some of the concepts that have been introduced in the Eden narrative, such as good and evil from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we looked at life and death from the tree of life, and we know that the non-contradictory biblical definition of life is that which repairs. Life is the ability to repair, be it uh, mentally, physically, and spiritually. And of course, death would obviously be the inability to repair. As far as good and evil is concerned, good, the biblical non-contradictory definition of good is that which creates in the long term, and evil is that which destroys in the long term. So, and we spent the last three pot, a couple podcasts actually talking about good and evil. So now we are ready to finally wrap up this uh, the study of this dispensation in the next couple podcasts, this one and the next one. In this podcast, we are going to, again, take everything we've learned and look at why eating that forbidden fruit um, gave Adam and Eve the knowledge of good and evil and led to their death. And we are also going to look at the judgments that God rendered um, based on the original sin to all three of the folks involved, Adam and Eve and the Nakash, the serpent. And then in the next podcast, we're going to wrap it all up by looking at the long-term effects of Eden and why um, the fall of Eden, the, our, man's fall in Eden actually influences, it has influenced and continues to influence us uh, to this day. And it, the, man's entire history can be tied into the longing that we feel from what we lost in Eden, like we can really trace all of our desires, all of our, all of the acts that we do, all the things we try to aspire to, and our general dissatisfaction with our lives and with this world, all the way back to Eden. We're going to talk about that in the next um, episode. I think it's one of the one of the more important um, podcasts, one of the more important subjects 
um, on this blog and on this podcast, helping you really understand who we are and why we do what we do. So let's get started with the forbidden fruit. What was the forbidden fruit? What was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, let's start by talking about what it was not. The forbidden fruit was not an apple. I know that seems to be the the the, the way that people talk about it. it, it it's, it's in the common vernacular that Adam and Eve ate the apple. That's where you get the term Adam's apple from. That men have that you know the the the, the myth is that you know a piece of the apple got caught in his throat, and that's why men have that you know bump there in their in the throat. We call the Adam's apple, but it was not an apple. That is just a tradition. It's a silly religious tradition. It has absolutely no biblical basis whatsoever. It was not an apple. Why? How do we know it was not an apple? Um, because there are other apple trees that exist. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was unique. It, there were God didn't make a bunch of apple trees and just you know wave his magic wand on one of them and make it the, the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was not an apple tree. It was not an apple. So let's just get that out of our heads. And there are a lot of esoteric, occultic, and even Luciferian reasons that have seeped into the church, into Christianity, and our understanding of it that, that surround the whole apple thing. In fact, I was reading a book by a occultic Luciferian guy, and I read that stuff not because I'm into it in, you know, in any legitimate form, but because I, I like to know all the corrupt information out there so that I can recognize you know, the, re, the real information and I can you know, be prepared to talk about um, some of the differences between true biblical knowledge and obviously the, obviously the knowledge that comes from the other side. Um, and so in this book, the person had a couple of really bad premises that, that stem from um, false information. And, and again, the reason I want to bring this up is because, unfortunately, and I talked about this a little bit a couple of podcasts ago, is that a, a lot of very powerful, influential people in our world, in, in government and corporations and and uh, just places that have like a lot of influence, and I'm not going to get too conspiratorial. But if you look in things like the look at things like you know these secret societies and the Illuminati and all these things, these people are Luciferians, and they have this warped idea about the roles of God and Lucifer in man's history. And again, I bring this up only because these people are very, very powerful. They are in governments. They run major corporations. They are kind of the hidden hand behind a lot of things that go on in our world. And they believe this warped idea that Lucifer was actually the good guy, that Satan was the good guy. I know it sounds crazy, but in, you don't have to believe it, but the point is they believe it. And so it's important that we understand what they believe. They believe that the God of the Bible, Yahweh, Jehovah, was actually a petty, vindictive, evil God who was holding mankind, or Adam and Eve in this case, in the grip of ignorance. And he wanted them to be ignorant. Of, of he didn't want them to have knowledge, and Satan was the good guy who, um, who, who he when he tempted Eve to eat of the tree, he was doing a good thing because he was trying to give her knowledge and break her out of this prison of ignorance that the vindictive God of the Bible put her in. I know it's nonsense, but that's what they believe. And one of the reasons they believe that is because of the apple and believe it or not the planet Venus. Uh, one of the when if you look at Ezekiel four, I'm sorry Ezekiel twenty eight and Isaiah fourteen the two places where the fall of Lucifer is described one of the titles given to him is the son of the morning which can also be translated morning star and the traditional the traditional morning star is the planet Venus because it's very bright in the sky right before dawn and so they say that this was obviously Satan and if you if you, you know, cut an apple in half and look at the pattern of the seeds. 
that pattern, this is what they say, emulates the rotation, the 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 path of rotation of Venus around the sun. Therefore, the apple is a part of the is associated with Venus. Venus is associated with Satan. So, um, Satan gave the apple to her to give her knowledge. Well, that's wrong for a couple of reasons. It's completely silly. But number one, it wasn't an apple, as we just talked about. And secondly, the planet Venus has nothing to do with Satan. There is nothing in the Bible that indicates that, first of all, that sun of the morning means morning star. And it, it also, it doesn't. there's no evidence in the Bible that the morning star, if there even is one, is associated with the planet Venus. There's, there's just, so he, this person wrote the book, makes his premise based on t- uh, two false ideas that number one that that the tree that the fruit of the um, of the knowledge of good and evil was an apple which it wasn't and that Venus was associated with Satan which there's no biblical evidence of it's silliness but it wasn't an apple so let's move on from that it also wasn't a fig now I, I understand that there is a little tiny sliver of biblical evidence that it was a fig based on the fact that after Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and they saw that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together to, to cover themselves people say well that must mean that you know, the fruit was a fig. Well, no, for two reasons. Number one, again, there are other fig trees out there and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was unique. It was not a fig tree. And secondly, if the tree was the source of their sin and their shame, why would they use leaves from that tree to cover themselves? That'll make no sense. All right, so enough of that. So we know what it wasn't. So what was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? The short answer is, I don't know. I, I, whatever it was, it was unique because there was only one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so that unique tree had a unique fruit that we've never seen before and will never see again because there's only one version of the tree. So we don't know what it looks, what, what kind of fruit it was. And it doesn't matter, honestly, what kind of fruit it was. What matters is that they disobeyed God when they ate it. I mean, the only thing we know about the fruit is that, you know, it looked yummy. That's what Eve said. She said, you know, it looked like it was good for, for food. It, it was also apparently an attractive, good-looking fruit, but that's all we know about it, and that's all we need to know about it. Now, did this fruit have any special properties? I honestly don't think so. But there is a possibility that there was something about it that maybe caused some type of physiological, spiritual change in Adam and Eve after they ate it. I don't think so for a couple reasons, but let me give you a reason why. Some people think that there was something to it, that it was something special. Because number one, they say that, you know, the tree of life, obviously, um, if you ate from the tree of life, they would would have been able to repair um, indefinitely because that would have, you know, kept them alive and given them immortality. So they say that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil must have had something in it that um, caused them to lose something physically or spiritually and caused them to fall. It just, it changed something about them. And again, I, I, I guess you could make that argument, but I don't think so. And the reason I don't think there was anything special about the fruit was because the first time Eve, when Eve first ate it, didn't say anything happened to her. It was only after Adam ate it did something happen. And we're going to talk about what that something was in just a few minutes. So what, I, what do I think the fruit was? I think it was just a fruit. I think it was just regular old fruit. It was, you know, sugar and fiber and, you know, so a few phytochemicals or whatever. I think it was just a fruit. The important thing was not what the fruit consisted of, but the important thing was that God told them not to eat it. And that's important because what happened after they ate it wasn't just something, you know, that happened in their digestive system. It it was a change from their spiritual state. And in order to see in order to understand what that change was, let's look at what their spiritual state was before the fruit. Before they ate of that fruit, they were they walked with God. 
Now, when we say they walk with God, I don't mean that they were just physically walking with God step by step, you know, as they walked down the garden path. And I'm sure they did that. It says in the Bible that they that they did walk with God in the cool of the day, which means that during, you know, in, in the early evening, you know, God physically came down and they walked and talked together. But that's not what a, what walking with God means. If you're a Christian, there we, we in, in our vernacular say, you know, you're, you're, you're in your Christian walk. That doesn't mean that the only time you're a Christian is when you're walking. And of course, that's, that's silly. And then there, if you go a couple of chapters over in Genesis, we see that in, in, um, in chapter 5, Enoch, one of Adam's descendants, the sixth from, from Adam, he, he walked with God. That doesn't mean that he, he was just on one long walk for 300 years. That's how long Enoch lived. Well, no, walking with God means you're in fellowship with God. Walking with God means that you are in fellowship with God. So Adam and Eve, when they walked with God, they were in fellowship with him. And since they there was no sin, um, their walk was superior to Enoch's walk and even our walk as Christians with God because we have sin in our lives. Enoch had sin in his life because he wasn't perfect. He, he came after the fall. But Adam and Eve had no sin. So when they walked with God, their fellowship with God was perfect. They had second by second, minute by minute, constant, moment by moment fellowship with God. They were in constant commun in constant communication with God. They communed with him perfectly. Now, we have no true idea what that's like. We have our moments where we are communing with God and, you know, there's a sense of of just of joy and peace and, and that ecstasy and, and revelation when we are just in those moments where we just feel totally connected with God. Unfortunately, those are moments are fleeting because eventually we have to get back to work and school and dealing with our kids and dealing with our job and you know paying bills and you know eating and whatnot. But Adam and Eve were in constant contact with God. That means that they never had a moment before they ate of the tree. They never had a moment where God was not directing them. The only other person who was in that constant fellowship was, G was Jesus. Jesus said, in, and I, I'll put the actual, actual verse up, but Jesus said that I do nothing except what the Father tells me. Jesus didn't do, the only thing Jesus ever did was what God told him to, what God told him to do. So in essence, Jesus was kind of God's avatar to give the kind of the video game um, uh, uh, metaphor is that you know when you're playing a video game you know there's a character on the screen that you control and you can that character only does what you tell it to do that's kind of where Jesus was Je God, Jesus gave his will over to God that's how Jesus could be fully God and fully man he was fully man in the sense that he had a free will we talked about free will um, in a previous podcast and blog you can look that up but what Jesus did with his free will was turned it completely over to God. And so he only did what God told him to do. He was in perfect fellowship with God. And that's so he was fully man because he had free will, but he was fully God because he turned that will over to God and God acted through him. And he only did what God told him to do. Adam and Eve were the same way before they ate of the tree. They only did what God told them to do. They never had to think one moment ahead. They were in constant contact with God. So they never had to think about the future or the long term. So now I think you, you get where I'm going with this. Once they ate of the tree for the first time in their existence, they did something that God did not tell them to do. And they broke that fellowship. They were no longer, as soon as they ate the fruit, they broke the fellowship. And so the, for the first time in their lives, they had to think ahead without God there. And I can't imagine how horrifying that was. It, it scared them. 
they, for the first time, had to think ahead. They had to think long-term. They never thought long-term before. They never had to. But once they ate of the fruit, God was gone. Well, he wasn't gone, but that fellowship they had, that constant communication was gone. They were on their own. And so for the first time in their lives, they thought, okay, what's going to happen next? They started thinking about the long term. And that's what they gained knowledge of, the long term. Remember, our definition of good and evil, good is that which creates in the long term. Evil is that which destroys in the long term. Adam and Eve knew good and evil in a sense of, they knew creation and destruction, but they didn't know the long term. And for the first time in their existence, they had to think long term. It scared the crap out of them. They became, they saw themselves for who they really were, and they became, they were ashamed and they hid because they were afraid. That's the first thing they did. They hid when they, when they heard God coming because they thought long-term for the very first time. They saw all the long-term, all the long-term implications of being separated from God. They saw sin. They saw their future. They saw their kids' future. They saw that their bodies, which, you know, brought them enjoyment, could now be a source of heartbreak and, and, you know, a sexual sin. And they be, they realize, oh my God, look at this, I'm naked. They never thought about naked before because thinking about naked means you're thinking about the long term, thinking about you're being unclothed and the implications of being disrobed in front of someone. And there, there's also an idea that's um, championed by uh, Chuck Missler, who I consider one of my long-term mentors. And he may be right, he may not be, I'm not sure about it, but he believes that before the fall, Adam and Eve um, occupied a higher um spatial dimension that they were clothed in light that they were not just in the three spatial dimensions that we occupy today but they were at a higher level but once they broke that fellowship with god they were no longer clothed in light and that's why they thought they were naked that's why they saw that they were naked anyway it could be could not be um you know you can study that i'll i'll put a link into the show notes um if you want to look into that more but the point is that they gained knowledge of the long term not only that but because they were no longer connected to god they were no longer connected to that source of spiritual repair. Any time they were connected with God, any any they never had any wrong thoughts. They never needed to have those thoughts corrected. But now that they were separated from God, they could have wrong thoughts. They could damage themselves spiritually and mentally, and there was no way to heal it. And so they started to die. They started to die. Um, uh, spiritually, they, they died spiritually because they were no longer no longer connected to the source of life, and started to die physically because, as we'll, we'll learn in a few seconds, they were cut off from the tree of life. So again, they began to die physically, mentally, and spiritually. Okay, so we have about ten minutes left, give or take, and I want to use this last time to t- last bit of time to talk about the judgments. And now we know these judgments. We've heard them a million times. They're very familiar to us. And the problem with anything that's familiar is that we start to take it for granted and we miss certain things. So let's look at these judgments and see why they are not only significant, but they're completely just. They are not arbitrary. God did not just come up with these because he came, became angry. He wanted the punishment to fit the crime, as it were. So let's just quickly read through um, uh, the curses from um, in Genesis. I'll, start with, I'll go in reverse order and start with the man. To Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of uh, good and evil, I'm paraphrasing here, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In sweat of your face shall you eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for dust you are, and dust you shall return. So uh, what does all that mean? Well, 
all let me just give an overview of the judgments the judgments are given in order to make them suffer the punishment for the way they reverse the hierarchy remember god was the hierarchy was god was supposed to be over adam Adam was then over Eve, and Adam and Eve together were, were overall creation, including the angels, the, the Nakash. They were they were to serve Adam and Eve, and but that that order, order was reversed. The serpent led Eve, then Eve led Adam, and then Adam tried to lead God by you know blaming God when when um, when God said why'd you do this, and he said oh because of this woman you gave me, so he tried to blame God. So because of that, God just reversed order. See, Adam was supposed to be the king of the world. Adam and Eve were supposed to be the king and queen of creation. The creation was supposed to obey them. But what was a curse here? We, what we see by looking at, this, uh, at the, the language in Genesis 3 was that creation will no longer obey Adam. He said, you know, they were, it, everything was supposed to do what Adam said. If he wanted a plant to grow, he could make the plant grow easily. If he wanted you know, animals to do what they, whatever he wanted, they would have obeyed him. But because of this, he said, God said that thorns and thistles, you know, will will come forth, and you will eat of the of you know of the um, of the ground of the uh, obviously of fruits and vegetables and bread and things like that. But it will be a toil. It will not. They will not simply obey you. You will have to work for it. You're going to have to work hard for it. Now, you could say that you could it could be argued that if you're not a farmer, well, you kind of escape this judgment because it sounds like you know agriculture. What if you're an accountant or a, or or God help you a lawyer? Or, you know, just a guy who repairs cars. Well, you know, you're not worried about thorns and thistles. Well, denotatively, that's true. But you have to look at these curses are not, these judgments are not just denotative. They're connotative as well. They're big picture. And in the big picture, what God is saying is that man is going to be subject to frustration in his role as a provider, in his occupation. And if you talk to, to, to us as men, the big thing for us is to be the provider. To, we want to control our world, and we because of because of the sin of Adam, we no longer have that control. Our world does not obey us. We are never going to be satisfied as a provider in our occupations, and we define ourselves by our occupations. I mean, when you meet someone, what is the first thing you? Well, one of the first things you ask them, you know, what do you do? What do you do? Because what we do, so, oh, I'm, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a, I, you know, I'm, I, I, I repair cars, I, I, I'm a contractor, I'm, I'm whatever. That's how you identify yourself as this is what you do. A man is cursed to be perpetually unsatisfied in this world because we will never, ever be able to control it. No matter how much money you make, you are going to be unsatisfied. Bill Gates and uh, uh, what's the other guy, Warren Buffett. They're unhappy. They're some of the richest people in the world, but still they are unsatisfied. And that's part of the curse. No matter how much money you make, no matter how successful you think you are, you always want more because the more, the quote unquote more that you want is to be in total control. You want the world to obey you and the world does not obey you. That's why some of the richest people in the world, once they make all the money that they think they would, would make them happy, they realize they're still not happy. What do they want to do? They want to start controlling things. They want to control policy. They start backing politicians and giving them money to try to control the world. They try to control the environment. They, you know, try to. They, they you know, want to control the population. They, we're always unsatisfied because what we, what what we want as men is not just to have a lot. We want to have it all. We want to be the kings that we were made to be, and we're not. We're going to talk about that quite a bit in the next podcast. So let's look at the curse on the woman. He says to the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain shall you bring forth children. 
your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you so what does that mean well it sounds like if you know the cur- the first part of the curse is you know pain and childbirth and you know childbirth obviously is very painful i under- i don't understand why women have more than one baby i get why you have the first one because you know you kind of you don't really know what it's like but once you have the first one and i was there when my wife was having my first son and it looked pretty uncomfortable <laughs> and you know it was for you know, several hours of of extreme discomfort and i'm just amazed she wanted to do it again but you know god bless her because i wouldn't have done it again but she did and i have two beautiful sons for her, so that's great but you would think that you know since this first part of the curse is on childbirth that if you're a woman who decides you don't want to have children you kind of escape the curse well again you're looking at it denotatively not connotatively in the big picture god's talking about relationships because just as a man's primary thing he wants to control is his world his environment his physical environment Women, for the most part, I'm speaking generally, yes, women, there are a lot of career women, especially in the last hundred years. But generally speaking, in history, women are the ones who are relational. Women are the ones who control or, or I don't say control is not the right word. Women are the ones who are focused on relationships. I mean, if you want to know how people are doing, you don't ask me, you ask my wife. She'll tell you how her mom's doing, how my mom's doing. She'll know, she knows better than me because women are relational. Women love being in relationships, not you know, be be they friendship relationships or romantic, um, women are very relational, and it's awesome that they are because if they weren't, you know, if it was just men, we probably would never talk to each other. I mean, my I mean, one my best friends, people who were in my wedding, if I talk to them once a month, it's it's a good month, but you know, my wife should talk to her friends every day because that's just you know how women are, and again, that's it's a wonderful thing. It's how it's how God made us, how God made women to be. But this curse says that women are going to be perpetually unsatisfied in their relationships. Just as men are perpetually unsatisfied in their occupations and their role as a provider, women are perpetually unsatisfied in their role as the relational person. And if you don't believe me, look at the articles in every single woman's magazine you see in the supermarket. They're all about how to improve your relationship. Look at all the books in the women's section. They're about how to improve relationships, how to heal relationships, how to be a better communicator, a better partner. Because, And why do these books and magazines sell? Because women are perpetually unsatisfied in their relationships. There is pain there. And in that most intimate relationship, that with your child... It is going to be painful, not just in giving birth to that child, but through that child's entire lifespan. You're going; women will feel that pain and that loss constantly because they will never have that perfect relationship, no matter how hard they try. Women are cursed with perpetual relationship dissatisfaction, and that leads to the next part of the curse, which, honestly, if you look at it, doesn't really sound like much of a curse. It says your desire will be unto the husband and he will rule over you. Well, desiring your husband, that doesn't sound like a curse, does it? I mean, it actually sounds like a good thing. If God's going to force you to desire your husband, well, I mean, uh, you know, unless you're married to an idiot, why wouldn't you want to desire your husband? How is that a curse? Well, that's unfortunately a mistranslation. It does not say that her desire will be towards her husband. It says her desire will be to the husband or more specifically her desire will be to the position of husband a woman will desire to be the husband the head of the household a woman wants to control the marriage that is what the curse says that you 
women will desire to be in control of the relationship. And anyone who has been in a relationship or has been married knows that this is the case. The woman wants to, because women are relational. So they want to, they want to have that perfect marriage with, to the perfect husband and, and have this perfect you know, communal, familial relationship with uh, with all the members of the family, but it never happens. And because it doesn't happen, just like men try to control their world um, in order to be the perfect providers, women try to control their relationships with their husband and their kids in order to have that perfect family, but it doesn't exist. There is no perfect family and you cannot control it. No matter how many, how many family get-togethers you put together, no matter how many things you try to do, it's never going to work. And you can't control your husband. You will try, but you fail. And that's where all the nagging comes in and all the different things that that, that essentially are, it's, it's a plot point of almost every family sitcom. It is, again, I'm not excusing husbands. We know we have our role. We, we do things very imperfectly ourselves. But a lot of it comes from, from the the woman not being in that role of being the the number two and that's not to say that women are less valuable than men men and women are equal and that they have equal value however they are not the same there's a hierarchy and god put that hierarchy in place not because he thinks men are are better than women or women are less than men but because god is a god of order and he put that order in place just as the trinity has an order god the father is number is in number one the son is number two the holy spirit is number three they are all god they're all equally god however they have agreed to have a harmonious relation a harmonious fellowship with each other and that's the same way it's supposed to be in a marriage where there's a harmony there should be a harmonious fellowship between husband wife and 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 god god is ahead of the husband the husband's ahead of the wife and if everyone is doing their job correctly then it's a good situation because yes there is the you know the the verse in in Corinthians, where it says, wives, submit to your husband. But it also, if you keep reading, because husbands love that one, you know, wives, submit to your husband. Every husband knows that verse. However, you keep reading, it tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Which And how did Christ love the church? By dying for them. So, yes, wives are to submit to their husband's authority. And husbands are, are supposed to be willing to die for their wives. And that's actually a good thing. A, wife, a woman should not have a problem submitting to someone who puts her first to the degree that he's willing to die for her. And if the woman is submitting to the husband and the husband is willing to die for the wife, then that is a good situation. However, it doesn't happen because of the curse. Her desire will be to the position of husband. However, God has decreed that the husband will rule. And that's part of that perpetual dissatisfaction. All right, let's wrap it up by looking at the curse on the serpent or the Nahash. Now, when you look at this curse, let me read it and we'll go from there. God said to the serpent, to the Nakash, because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle and every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All right, what does that mean? Well, some folks use this as evidence that the Nakash, that the serpent was actually just a regular old snake. After all, snakes do go on their belly and they are cursed above, and they, they seem to be cursed above all cattle and, and of the beasts of the field. Well, that only works a little bit until you read the rest of, of, of the curse and it doesn't fit at all. When God said you're cursed above all the cattle of the field, again, it is not, if you go back to the podcast where I talked about how the Nakash is not a snake, that comparison it's not a comparison to the beasts of the field it's a contrast you are cursed above and beyond them how do we how do we know a curse above beyond them because other animals are cursed he, he only he said you're cursed beyond any animal I'm, i would never put a curse on an animal that's worse than what i'm cursed cursing you with 
and he's talking specifically to Satan. You are cursed beyond anything that's ever been created. You're you're cursed above all creation. So you're basically bringing him down low. You are now lower than the animals because the hierarchy was God, then man, then created beings and animals. I'm sorry, it was, it was God, excuse me, then man, then angels, and then, you know, animals. He's saying you're now, you went from being above the animals. You're now below the animals. You're cursed beyond them. You are now lower than an animal. That's what that means. He says, on your belly, you will go. Oh, well, snakes go on their belly, right? Yeah, but that's not what he's saying. He, he's what, he, what What's being said here is that you are being brought down low. Now, um, there is a possibility and um, I, I was, someone actually brought this um, out to me in the comment, not in, in an email they sent to me when I was talking about the Nakash a few podcasts ago. And they said, is it possible that all serpents... Now keep in mind again that Satan... The reason that Satan, um, that Nakash came to mean serpent is because Satan, the Lucifer, is, is, um, is associated with reptiles. Based on the fact, and again, please read, uh, go back to the podcast about the serpent in the garden to get the full um, full explanation of this. But basically, Satan was a cherub. There were four cherubs in the throne room of, throne room of God. We see this in Revelation four and five, and those four cherubs um, uh, represented. They one looked like a man, one looked like um, a cow, one looked like a, 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 a eagle, and the other one looked like a lion, which represent represented carnivores with the lion, herbivores with the cattle. Um, obviously, avians or birds with the eagle, and the one that looked like man represented man. It represented all the things God created except for um, cold-blooded animals, fish, and reptiles. And that 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 representation was missing. But it makes sense it was missing because Lucifer was also a cherub, and he was no longer in heaven, so he wasn't in the throne room of God. So it's very likely that Lucifer was the cherub that represented cold-blooded animals fish and reptiles and and he's also called a dragon in other places in the bible another rep, a reptilian reference so lucifer's look is is associated with reptiles so the person who wrote me said is it possible that um snakes were that you know lucifer looked like a snake and that all snakes were cursed to go on their bellies because as a representation of the curse on satan and that it's possible because if you look at archaeology, especially in the Americas, Latin America, North America, there is a Luciferian symbol of the plumed or feathered serpent. And and it's pretty clear that they're talking about, you know, the, the it used to be a plumed shining serpent that possibly was Satan. So it is possible that before the fall, I know this sounds weird, so bear with me, that uh, snakes had wings. Maybe, maybe not. But if, if they did have wings, could, it could be possible that part of this curse was that all snakes were brought down low. They were robbed of their wings and they were, had to grow on their bellies. Maybe, maybe not. It's not really important. But the important thing was that, is that this does not prove that the Nakash was a snake. On going on your belly means you're brought low. And if you read um, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, where it talks about the fall of Satan, it makes it very clear that Satan was brought down low. And I think this is probably plumed serpent or not. I think this is an analogy or a metaphor that Satan is brought down from a high position to a very low position. And the reason, other reason we know he's not a, uh, an actual snake is because it says that he will eat dust all the days of his life. Well, snakes don't eat dust. That would be a waste of venom. Snakes eat, you know, other animals. And so what does that mean, he will eat dust? Well, if you stay in the same chapter, remember at the end of Adam's curse, God said that, you know, from dust you came, from dust you will return. So dust is 
a, a representation of man. So in, in saying that the serpent, the Nakash, will eat dust is basically saying that he will hunger for the death of man. And I think that's pretty clear when you look at what Satan's motivations are. He wants to destroy you and I. He wants to destroy man. He hungers for our death. That is part of the curse that he is cursed with a longing for our death, even though our destiny, if you you know believe in God and you are a Christian, is to have eternal life. So Satan will ultimately be thwarted completely in his his quest to, to um, have man's death be you know be the, his ultimate state because man you know um, who if, if man become you know a Christian is in fellowship with God he will live forever. And lastly, this is really important. It says that you know he will put enmity between um, God will put enmity between the, the Nakash and the woman and between her his seed and her seed. Well, first of all, you know, again, that's another proof that it's not a snake because snakes do not have a special hatred for women. If you put a snake in a room with a man and a woman, it's not going to automatically go to the woman because it's like, oh, my God, there's a woman. I got to go bite her. No, that doesn't happen. When he talks about that, what he is really talking about is this. Is, they call this the um, the, the proto-gospel. And, and what that means is that this is the first. It's almost a declaration of war here where... Um, uh, two seeds are named the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent the seed of the serpent is you know the seed means your your offspring so who, the offspring of satan and you know that thing that that means in one sense the um angels who fell with him um demons also people who are on satan's side will be at war at enmity with the seed of the woman now this is actually a almost a an, an intentional error and that the seed or the sperm comes from the man, not the woman. Whenever you say someone is someone else's seed, you're basically you're talking about a man's um, progeny. But the seed of the woman is actually an indication of the virgin birth. It is saying that the seed of the woman will be a, a someone who is born without a physical father. So it was actually a woman who was going to give birth without the intervention, the without having sex, without having the sperm of a man and that would have to be a virgin birth so here you have the virgin birth very strongly hinted at and so we know that the seed of the woman that's one of the titles of Jesus of the Messiah of the Mashiach Nagib so we know that it says that there will be enmity between the woman and her and the serpent and his seed and your seed so there was going to be enmity between Jesus and also if you look at um, you know what Jesus accomplished He's also talking about Christians. So we are talking about there's going to be enmity between the the sons of this of the devil and the sons of God, the the you know the people who are saved. And it says that there will be a bruising that the um that he that Satan will bruise the heel of of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will will crush his head. So there so obviously there's a um, one's going to be a mortal wound, one's going to be an injury. The wounding of the heel, I mean, obviously, if someone wounds your heel, it'll hurt, but it's not going to kill you. Whereas the seed of the woman, Jesus, will crush the, the, the head of the Nakash and will actually destroy him. And we find that, that plays out with the crucifixion where Jesus was hurt, he was brutalized, but he, you know, was not eternally dead. However, his death and resurrection crushed the head of the serpent and completely destroyed the serpent. So what you have here is the first prediction, the first prophecy of the gospel, that the seed of the woman, the virgin birth, that Jesus Christ will be at war with Satan and Satan's offspring. And while they will hurt him 
physically, it will wound him physically, he will have the ultimate victory and he will crush their head. So um, that's, that is actually very good news for us. So anyway, that's kind of wrap it up. I'm sorry, but we're about 10 minutes over. I apologize for that, but I wanted to, to get all this out. Um, please let me know if you have any questions about the the judgments or any of the other things I talked about here. Um, in the next podcast, we are going to get into why we keep longing for Eden, why we keep trying to recreate Eden, and how every desire we have, it be, be it spiritual or secular, whether you are a religious person or a whether you're a Christian, whether you are non-religious, whether you're an atheist, we still all long to get back to Eden. And that is an important that is important dissatisfaction. If you look at the curses again, they're about dissatisfaction. Man is dissatisfied in his role as a provider and in his inability to control the world. Women are dis, are perpetually dissatisfied in their relationships. There's that dissatisfaction, and that's there for a reason. God put that dissatisfaction there to drive us to Him. But if you don't go towards Him, then that dissatisfaction is going to drive you into unfortunate places that will. You know that will pretty traumatically um, affect you and your fellow man. And we're going to talk about why. Um, excuse me. In the uh, next podcast. So um, again, thank you for listening. Um, I appreciate it. Don't forget to subscribe so that you will get the podcast when they are published. And I will talk to you again next week when we talk about our longing, our our perpetual unsatisfaction, our longing for Eden.